Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Surface Pro gives you the power you need when you're out and about. It has a super fast processor and all-day battery life so that you can play up to 13 and a half hours of video without needing to charge. It's light enough to take anywhere and works with your iPhone, so it's synced with your life. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here is a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. That's how Hotel Tonight scores such incredible deals. They team up with awesome hotels to help them sell these rooms and pass those savings along to you. Not like last resort places either. They work with cool top-rated hotels where you actually want to stay. And even though the name is Hotel Tonight, you can actually book up to 100 days in advance in top destinations and up to a week in advance everywhere else. So if you want to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, download the Hotel Tonight app now. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's literally sipping the tea. It's Andy Greenwald. I am your meme made flesh. Tea, sipping the tea is cool still, right? Like you could still say that? Yeah. I mean, I'm doing it, so it's accurate because... You know, I'm a little, <clears throat> little, you know. While you're sipping the tea, mm-hmm. let me tell you about some blog posts you should bookmark. Wow. On your browser. This is 2018, bro. This is TheRinger.com. We're really, we're really hitting our stride. Everything that we thought we were going to be, we're ha- it's what's happening right now. That's incredible. Wakanda <laughs> forever. <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I'm just playing around, man. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on TheRinger.com this week. A bunch of great features. So I want to shout out to Michael Bauman, who wrote a great piece on Beto O'Rourke and his run for Senate in Texas. Do you think Beto O'Rourke was as excited as you were when he got the promo of the new Ice Age album in his email? Yo, Beto O'Rourke was an at the drive-in, man. Don't you, you watch <laughs> your mouth. I know. Um, I'm on board. So there's great pieces all over the site this week, but I do want to shout out Sean Fennessy's pieces about the Oscar races. Almost every category he's covered. I think he actually has covered every category. He's got one more coming tomorrow. If you're just starting to read about Oscar movies, if you feel like you've heard it all about Oscar movies, there is something in there for everybody. I also really, really, really highly recommend Chaos and Collins on Zero Dark Thirty. Me too. That was a little bit earlier in the week. Um, kind of looking back five years since Zero Dark Thirty. And probably the most reasonable, rational, interest, curious and passionate piece of movie criticism I've read this year. It's just a fantastic essay. It's weird the way it's generous in interpretation and thought towards differing points of views. It's weird on the yes. internet. I and like I think that. that Zero Dark Thirty was, is an interesting lens through which to uh, view one of the shows that we're going to be talking about today, which is Looming oh. Tower. Ah, I was hoping, I was hoping, hoping it was um, uh, ugly delicious. <laughs> we're going to talk about Looming Tower a little bit later. We'll talk a little bit about the Oscars a, a little bit later, but we're going to start off the conversation talking about what? two shows that we like quite a bit. Before we talk about TV, should we say that we're doing an Oscar show? Oh man, you, we definitely should. I mean, I'm here to do promo. I don't know what you're here for. Yeah, this is all, it's all, it's all promo. We are going to be live in the studio Sunday night. Before and after the Oscars. With Amanda Dobbins and Sean Fennessy talking about, uh, talking about the show beforehand, kind of trying to get, get a last second feel for what's going to happen. And then we will go live immediately after the show to talk about what did happen. This proved fruitful last year. Yeah, that was good luck by us. (laughs) Yeah, uh, because last year, obviously we had the La La Land Moonlight. uh, Snafu. Snafu. 
Um, but this year, you know, who knows what's going to happen with this preferential ballot with these nine movie, you know, best pictures, everything can, everything that could happen, every, anything could happen. As long as three billboards doesn't win, I'm fine. We'll get to that. I'm sure you're going to want to tee off on that. Do you want to do that today or you want to wait till Sunday? I'm just going to let the day take me. Wait till you're wearing formal wear to go to an execution? uh, I've got so many things to say. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Atlanta. Uh, We talk often about the belt. We talk about shows that are consensus, are beloved by a Mm -hmm. consensus of people. Uh, There really, with the exception of Thrones, I think, isn't one like Atlanta. Obviously, the numbers are completely disproportionately in the favor for Game of Thrones. But I think that they, those two are the two most beloved shows on television right now. Look, you, you say we talk a lot about the championship belt. We don't, according to our producer, Zach Mack, uh, or his alter ego and the questions, Alan. But here's why. Because how do you give it to anything when Atlanta's coming back? And Atlanta comes back tonight for the second season. Mm-hmm. It's, it's March 1st. It's on FX. Atlanta is the best show on TV. It is not close. There is simply nothing else on television at the moment that is as uh, artistically, creatively brilliant, that is as thematically challenging and curious and surprising and thrilling Mm -hmm. and funny as hell. Uh, The season that's coming back, it's been interesting reading some of the reviews. You and I have seen the first couple episodes. We're clearly fully on board um, we will talk more about this in depth. Yeah, I don't really want to get too, too in depth into that because I, it's just part of the great feeling about watching well, this first episode is the surprises that come. Yeah, so I won't even speak, I won't say any detail, I won't spoil anything, but all I will say is that the if you are the kind of person who reads reviews or at least follows critics who have written reviews of the new season, a couple of the headlines are basically the show returns a little bit more conventional than when you last saw it. Yeah. I, 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 got, I got to tell you, throw that, throw that take out, honestly, because what they're saying is, The episodes that we've seen thus far do not veer wildly in tone the way they did last year uh, so far. Mm -hmm. They track the characters moving forward through time and space and uh, fledgling rap careers. But there is just simply nothing conventional about this show. I would say that these first few episodes, to me, were closer to the original pitch that we had heard before the first season about... Uh, you know, twi- about like, that it was more of like a comedy set in a Twin Peaks version. Twin of, Peaks with rappers. Yeah, Twin Peaks with rappers. Uh, it feels more like that than it does last season of Atlanta in yeah. a great way. Yeah, it is. It, it just, it does your head in and it spins you around. And it the, for me, the experience of watching it, you know, we've been talking and we're going to talk today about how this year so far, maybe in general, we are in this era of like B minus TV. Things are fine. Mm-hmm. They could be better, but they're fine. Atlanta is a is a full 4D experience for me. I, I am watching it, and I'm thrilled that I'm watching it, and it feels completely alive. And I wish there were more shows like it. I'm excited to be talking about it with you this season. Any other takeaways for you as we, you know, again, no spoilers on the season, but how the show is returning, the world it's returning to, and the press coverage that has accompanied it? Yeah, I think that there's, it's interesting to see how different shows have processed uh, the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, internalize them, externalize them, talk about them explicitly, talk about them implicitly. I've just been watching a few episodes of the season of High Maintenance in which the election on that, yeah. looms over the season as a unnamed event that is referenced quite a bit but is never quite explicitly spelled out what has happened. And mm-hmm. so I guess it's open to interpretation what it could be, but it's hard to see it as anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and a lot of the jokes that they sort of derive are jokes that you could have derived from behaviors after the election. Um, Atlanta, and this is discussed in, I, w- I would say, a inc- 
compulsively readable New Yorker feature by yeah. Tad Friend about Donald Glover that was released this week. Atlanta deals the election as like a phantom limb. Mm-hmm. There's something out there, right? Mm-hmm. There, We don't really know what it is. And it's also, as those guys have discussed, as Stephen Glover and Donald Glover have discussed, they moved the action from Atlanta. Season one is a summer show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sitting outside. It's soaking up Atlanta in the summer to a very dark, very rainy, for, foreboding winter in Atlanta. Robin season. Robin season, holiday season, when people want things from you, people are taking things from you. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that New Yorker profile. Before I do, I should mention that we have launched a new show called The Recapables, uh, hosted by Amanda Dobbins, which will go up every Thursday after the episode of Atlanta airs, and you can get your quick fix of analysis and recap of, of, of season two. <laughs> by the way, I did text Amanda today and ask if we could do a special one-off episode of The Recapables for the Sweet Bitter trailer, <laughs> which dropped today. It's the new show coming no, from Stars. Amanda and I both read the novel, and I'm dying to talk about it with someone yeah. in public. Okay. She, she said no. Okay. But I'm just putting it out of the universe, recapable like a secret. Sweet bitter. I'll, I'll just throw, recapable Sweet Bitter. Run it by Bill. No, yeah. just Recapable just Sweet Bitter trailer. Um, what did you think of the New Yorker profile? Um, I, I want to I talk about the New Yorker profile briefly, but I want to circle back to what you were saying. I, I agree with you completely about the, the specter of the election hanging over the show, but I also think there's something about this season that feels so granular and lived into the lo- true lives of these characters and the true lived experiences of ca- of people like these characters and the place it so cements you in their skin that you it it it, it well i'm saying this because the idea of robin season it seemed like a conceit sort of linked the season together there is a lot of larceny in the first few episodes mm-hmm. but there is also this deep deep born sense of uh, disappointment, but lack of surprise in how the universe treats these characters and what's coming around the corner and what's next. It is a lived in experience of disappointment in whether it's in Atlanta or in the country or in the society writ large. And one of the greatest things that came out of the first season is Brian Tyree Henry's performance as Paperboy. It has only grown in the second season. And his face, when he just looks at something, is give him all the awards, put him on Mount Rushmore. And that face of disappointment is the show to me. And it feels so um, experiential that it's lo- it's just unlike anything else on TV. It's wild how G- much television there is. Yeah. And there's so little life on television. That's what I'm saying. And this is just, that's what this show's, show is. It, it feels so lived in. Not necessarily real all the time. Or no, not realistic. But it feels real because it speaks to an experience of, of, of poverty on many senses. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously the people are flashing money occasionally on the show, but lack of opportunity, lack of money, just lack of everything that is born, that is baked into the the characters and the yeah. social strata that the show is is, sure. is set in. It it feels artistically profound to me when I watch it. Um, what? So I wanted to ask oh, you about so the, the New Yorker profile just because there was a big conversation topic and people can check out Cam and Justin talking about it on Damage Control mm-hmm. too. Uh, I've been asked by plenty of people not to be like everybody's coming up and asking me about this. No, but I, my opinion is that I can't tell if Donald Glover was fucking with Tad Friend. Sure, but I think that's also part of the fun. Yeah. I mean, look, I think an essential companion piece to this um, New Yorker profile. And sorry to make this uh, sorry to make this podcast like sponsored by the Ringer or something. Yeah. But the uh, uh, Rob Harvilla piece about Donald Glover that you guys put up the other day is great mm-hmm. because it mirrors a lot of my own experience with him. Which is you read this piece by Tad Friend and, and you're reading the way Donald Glover talks about himself, about his abilities and his talent, and how he's basically messianic at this point. Yeah, he's like a computer program and, who can copy behaviors and and is so talented. He's the T one thousand. Yeah, and you read this and I'm like, well, he's 
full of shit and he's crazy, but also maybe he's the most important artist working today. And can it be both? And I really appreciated that Harvilla in his piece is like, Childish Gambino was bad. Yeah. Those albums were bad. And that the, the and apprenticeship took place in public, which is different than the way artists used to really work. Exactly. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time framing the debate about the emergence of artists these days being like, oh, we're so lucky because our our we were before Live Journal. Our college newspapers where we were doing record reviews aren't available. We didn't have to fail so loudly in public and does that curtail an artistic journey. Donald Glover's arc suggests the opposite, that there is some validity to doing your 10,000 Malcolm Gladwell hours in public because look, the work speaks for itself. You know, I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible the the ride he's on right now, and I have no reason to doubt him. Um, the profile is great because it really explains on a lot of different levels, not just how um, TV sausages get made, but celebrity sausage and music and and careers. Uh, I also really appreciated the way he went right at the elephant in the room of race and how it has played in Donald Glover's career and his relationship to the network Mm -hmm. and his relationship to the larger world, the show's relationship to it. You know, is this black Seinfeld? What does that even mean? Um, The extra layer of expectation that comes baked in when, you know, as Kenya Barris, who's the showrunner of Blackish says in his, in his uh, quotes in the piece, you know, I, I, if I screw up, I'm screwing up for the culture. It's been a secondary debate about Black Panther. What if it was bad? It, what if it was bad? Right. Exactly. Nobody so, would have treated it like it was Thor Dark World, but they wouldn't have made a Thor Ragnarok. That's right. You know? It's a great point. Thank and, you also for saying the full title of yeah. Thor Dark World and Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. You're disdainful of colons. Uh, I I thought it was really, I think it's a really impressive piece. Um, it's an impressive performance by Glover. It's an impressive performance by Tad Friend. We don't actually know if they were collaborating on the same article, but I like the article that came out of it. Sure. And, you know, so if you read this and your takeaway from this is, uh, boy, look at all the shade he's throwing at FX. I don't see that because FX puts the show on the air. FX empowered him to make this show. I mean, I don't see anybody coming out of this poorly except maybe Lena Dunham. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, I guess, Yeezus era Kanye, maybe even before that, a little pre that. Well, we, we famously hate that. Uh, what? <laughs> Yeezus era Kanye. We, we kind of love that. Um, the way in which he... I, I just wonder if he had interviewed him on a Wednesday, if he would have said the same things he talked about on a Tuesday. Let's put it this way. He does. He did name his son Legend. Right. Right. So, and that's, the stuff that's, about that's, the, the basketball stuff where he's just like, I was okay. Yeah. I decided I need to not suck. Yeah. So I basically practiced as hard as I could until I didn't suck and I could pretend that I was good. And that's I, I a very was, candid way of talking about, I mean, it's an almost, there's an app for that way uh-huh. of talking about genius and talent and skill and craft and art and sports or whatever. And that's usually you can't get that far in life by faking it, or at least we tell we tell ourselves that. At least we don't like it when our when our heroes or the people that we love say, I'm faking it. True. But we don't like to see them sweat. We don't like to see the effort. This goes back to what you're saying about the Harvilla thing is that he is a different kind of person. Now, mm-hmm. I actually don't really care about the whole childish Gambino side of this. I mean, the music part about it is, is sort of tertiary to the, my entire appreciation of Donald Glover. The Atlanta is so far and away the mm-hmm. most important thing I've ever seen him do. But I find him a fascinating character for sure. Yeah. And, you know, you can have take issue with certain uh, the the distance with which Tad Friend seems to be approaching this subject at, at various points. Um, well, I think considering who Tad Friend is and his age, uh, it's fair. Yeah, but I think that what happens is that, the to me, sometimes the best profiles are not actually endorsements or takedowns. Mm-hmm. They, are in, they are kind of these 
ruminations and their their meditations on a subject. And I, I really I really enjoyed reading this piece. I mean, it was a very fast, multi-thousand word read for sure. Yeah, I think people should check it out. But I think the most important thing is, look, this show's back. Yeah. It's so great that this show is back. I wish other shows, I don't want them to copy it. I just want them to take a minute, sit with it, think about it, and learn from it. This is a good. It, this is a good way to go for it. So okay. I want to talk a little bit about. We'll talk about McMafia the first episode now. I think we'll continue to hit it from time to time, but yeah, we're gonna preview, review McMafia, and then after the break, Looming Tower. Is that how we're gonna go? Yeah. Well, McMafia the first episode came out on earlier this week on Monday. So let's just quickly go through that because I think you liked it. I loved it, but we can we can hit it more in depth, yeah. and then we'll talk about Looming Tower afterwards. Um, did you like it? Dude, what'd you think? I mean, like, I've, I've kind of been big up in this show for a while. What, what did you think? So just to remind people, this is on AMC Monday nights. It's a co-production. It's a, it was a very expensive British show. Mm-hmm. It's filmed impressively. Everywhere. Apparently all over the world. Yeah. Based on a nonfiction book from 2008, I believe, yes. with the same title, talking about the rise of global crime syndicates. And this story is set uh, with a, a family of uh, Russian emigres, uh, to London, yeah. who left behind a shady, back, a shady past, and the shady past comes comes calling. Um, James Watkins and Hossein Amini adapted the book. Yes. And uh, it stars... Uh, James Norton. James Norton. Who, David Strathern, yeah. James Norton, who sounds like the heir to a uh, computer security <laughs> dynasty and acts with about as much charisma. Yeah. Um, I, my take on this show, so you're very, very hype on this. Yeah, I think I agreed with almost every single thing that Alison Herman wrote about it, which was that All it I saw is her write su- is that they're Jews, and I was like, cosign, I'm it's psyched on that. It's the successor to the night manager, and it's big little lies for dudes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I, I watched this, and immediately, I mean, you're right, it ticks many, many, many pleasure boxes in terms of, a, you know, a, it's a global crime show. There's there's intrigue. I love the I love the way it looks. I love the reach of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do appreciate that it is based on a nonfiction book, so it is attempting to illustrate something, even while it is um, basing the narrative in a particular story. My issue with it is essentially the, the story that it's basing it everything in in this family is not so compelling to me mainly sure. because I think this lead actor is is I, I would relate him to this table I would maybe cast him as this table that we're talking about he's been about. divisive I mean if you look at all like I, I, this show's already aired in England and if you read through yeah. comments and, and recaps it's it's a very divisive performance I think it's tough because the show is basically trying to riff a little bit on The Godfather the main character that he plays uh, Alex Godman is uh, separate and apart from his family's shady past. Mm-hmm. He's doing well as a hedge fund manager, and then he's drawn into this shady underbelly, and he seems to have a knack for it. Right. Um, I'm less interested in seeing this hedge fund manager get scuffed up a little bit. I find him uninteresting at the beginning, and then I find his descent into this world also not particularly compelling. Uh-huh. The show itself dramatically got me. Like, I'm into it. I enjoyed yeah. watching it. And and in the way that you said, like, I, I watched the first half hour on Monday, and I, was, I wasn't sure. Then things pick up considerably once yes. caviar is served. Yes, and we'll I just put it that way. I'll yeah. put it that way. Um, and the next thing, anyway, I found myself watching the next two. So I have, I, I am in. I sound more reserved than I probably am because I'm enjoying it. Um, I really do love the fact that they had the budget to go to Dubai, to go to India, to go to Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, there are these little performances, sneaky performances on the side, like the guy who uh, plays Alex's father, who is a star of a bunch of Russian films that did well over the last, like art house films like Leviathan, who I think has now offended uh, Russia more than um, the uh, Democratic senators on the uh, <laughs> on the on the uh, intelligence okay. committee. Yeah, uh, by his comments, have you seen this? No, he's basically like Russia is not a good country anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild Shout thing out to, to you, say. Leviathan. Yeah. Um, 
I, I like those things on the side. The David Strathairn part, I mean, I like the Czech actor. So here's, what I, here's the thing I'm into about oh, but So let me, let me yeah. just say, my, my big picture thing is this fits almost too neatly into my recent, the theory that I'm developing, that this is, we're kind of in this B-minus era, where right. I wish it was better. Boy, look how lucky we are to have this. But I, if you had cast it a little bit differently, if you had, maybe people weren't busy, it's just a limited talent pool that could have elevated this material from being something not just serviceable, but very entertaining and well done to something maybe transcendent. Yeah, so I think that this is not a new kind of project. People have been, they've they've been doing it since Syriana. They were doing it before Syriana where you basically try to take something that's in the water, something that is a a headline, is Mm -hmm. a, something that people are talking about, whether it's um, the rush for oil money in the Middle East or in this case, for, it's the... Or traffic. Basically the Russian example. mafia diaspora, you know, and what it means and, and what this interconnected mm-hmm. world means to the underworld. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that fascinates me about the yeah. show. The family drama is the family drama. I, I personally enjoy it. I think it's rendered fine. You know, I don't... I don't I, would, it, would it be slightly different if, Dan, if uh, James Norton was more fired up it, I, I don't it, know, but I also don't know that it would have really been appropriate do, for the character. Do we have these bottles on set with us? These as are a vodka tribute? bottles, yes. Because the one thing I must say is my man's father just just stays slugging Stoli out of the Poland Springs bottle. Yeah. Like um, with deep gulps. I think that as it, the season goes on, you'll see that it actually gets pretty far into uh, both the superficial and the real ways in which it's weird to be an immigrant in London, a, yeah. a rich immigrant in London. Yeah. Uh, what, where, when you actually feel part of or not part of a country and mm-hmm. a homeland. And that winds up being a theme throughout the season. Uh, I, you know, I guess we should say, here comes a spoiler. Uh, I, it's a shame that Boris leaves us so fast yeah, because the, he's actually the, best. the most alive character. David Denchik, who's this great actor who was really, really compelling in top of the lake, China girl that mm-hmm. was on last year really steals the show early on and then uh, exits the show <laughs> pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and that's a shame yeah. because you're right. I mean, he is just, he's on another level. And when you think he's going to be part of the show, it adds the human drama to what is otherwise a chilly drama about um, people as pawns. Sure. But, you know, it's also, I got to say, it is interesting to watch the show. And this leads into our conversation about Looming Tower, which, which we'll have in a moment. Um, the world feels scarier. I'll say, I'll use an I statement. I feel like the world is a scarier place recently. You know, whatever privilege needs to drop from my eyes, sure. But um, so when we're talking about like a Russian criminal influence on the world due to um, unchained capitalism, it strikes a chord. I, you know, and so when I'm you watching don't even have the to show, nail it that specifically, it can just be the 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 impact that clicking a button on a computer can have on the world, which exactly. is another thing that really yeah is a major part of this show. Is just the idea that this movement of money through these shadow accounts can somehow influence yes thousands and I, millions of people's lives. I, yes, and I, and it's it's I'm glad you pointed that out because there's a, a a common criticism I would make between these two shows that I don't even think we intended to link in terms of reviewing them, but it, it, it kind of makes sense. Sometimes I wish both shows had been a little bit more aware of the power of what they were playing with and hadn't felt the very TV need to gild the lily. Mm-hmm. And what you're t- speaking to, there are repeated moments um, in McMafia where our man Alex clicks his mouse, money is moved, and then we physically see the money go into a duffel bag and be handed to someone at a port in Mumbai. And all of a sudden, that abstract act is made real. That is a very powerful idea mm-hmm. and worthy of dramatization and itself worthy of 
I mean, that's enough. You yeah. know what I mean? And and I think the show then runs in 100 different directions because it wants to have more and more and more or give us more context or we need to see someone being thrown off a building, you know, which is always fair. Sometimes you do need to see that. Right. Um, but but it, it does start to feel like one of those shows where the parts of it that I'm most interested in are zooming past me as the car uh, drives down a back street in Prague <laughs> to throw someone off of With a, a car bomb on it. Okay. Yeah. You're in a McMafia and you want oh, to yeah, revisit. Oh, yeah, I've already, I've watched it. I, I highly recommend it. I think it gets better as it goes along. Tell people along. why. I just, I feel like I don't want my last word on this because you've seen more. Um, get people, get people to stay on the train. I think that his, you, you alluded to his descent. It, it, it very much follows the Godfather arc, you know, and I think that if you're hoping for, you know, that he's going to go back to regular hedge fund managing soon. He's not going to. Uh, I, I definitely, it makes me want to ask my kids to start calling me Papa. Papa, in yeah. In a very gentle voice. Um, no, Papa. I think that his arc, even though his performance might be, might be ha- have some problems, I think the character's arc is is really quite thrilling to watch. Interesting. Yeah, so check it out. Uh, maybe we'll hit it back in a, in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll talk about Looming Tower. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Caviar Andy. Life is too short for bad food, for mediocre delivery, for settling for what they're slinging down the street. You're hungry for something better, so let Caviar deliver. Caviar brings you quality eats like Suvla in San Francisco, mm. Toki Underground in Washington, D.C., Momofuku in New York, or John and Vitti's in Los Angeles. Let me tell you something. As a Los Angelino yeah. transplant... I stays hitting that John and Vidi's on caviar. Do you really? The fusilli remains spicy mm. in its in its trip from Fairfax to my house. Yeah, there's a variety of pizzas that I love. They do a uh, a kind of like romaine lettuce with like a spicy Calabrian dressing. You. It's look at you, House of Carbs. Stuff. You know John what I can, you know what I can get at my house on caviar? Cosa Buona. Oh, kids love it. Love the mozzarella sticks there. Can get a lot of things too from the Grand Central Market downtown LA. I'm talking about delicious meals delivered from the best local restaurants. You'll find exactly what you're craving, and Caviar delivers it all right to your door. It's food you want to feed your family, your friends, your coworkers. So get the Caviar app or order online at trycaviar.com. Try Caviar today and pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more using the code WATCH. That's valid until March 31st, 2018. Caviar delivers to the office, too. So if you're working through lunch, planning a big meeting or event, let Caviar cater. Use the GPS tracking and watch your order get delivered. Caviar is the way to get the quality food you want from your favorite restaurants. Remember, pay no delivery fee on your first Caviar order, plus take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with the code WATCH at trycaviar.com. All right, Andy, we're back to talk about Looming Tower. It's probably the biggest Hulu production since Handmaids, right? Yeah. Uh, it is really, they're kind of playing it up the middle in between the HBO model where you put out 14 things a year, maybe, mm-hmm. and the Netflix model where you put out 14 things a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hulu is somewhere in the middle. They have this incredible library, obviously, that keeps people coming, but they they are building up their original content, whether it's The Path, uh, whether it's Handmaids, like we said. And, and Looming Tower is the, probably the the biggest profile thing they've done that's their ever. Big, I don't even know if they thought that Handmaids was going to be the No, this the, was their big play. Yeah. So based on one of the great nonfiction books I've ever read, honestly. Did you read it? By Lawrence Wright, yeah. Uh, wow. Looming Tower. And it it really goes a long way when you when you think about what the book does that the show does not do. Mm-hmm. I am I'm not a fan of this show. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first started getting into 
freelance writing when I was really young. And there was a, a thing that would often happen. I know it happened to you too, especially when there was like fewer magazines and fewer outlets to write for. So there was this idea that you had to, your ideas had to compete for space. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things you'd always hear back from an editor, maybe after a first draft, or maybe even just when you were pitching an idea was, why this, why now? Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's getting asked enough in television anymore. Um, 100%. I, th- I think it's either sounds good or it's we've attached these people, let's go forward with it, yep. or it's we'll figure it out once we get the ball rolling. Yep. And television actually has this unique opportunity to to do all these different things with visual storytelling that the movies can't do. And to see it, in the case of Looming Tower, reverting to an almost pre-prestige model of storytelling. The same way that I feel like Waco did as well. Where it's kind of just like, we haven't thought this through beyond we got a couple of people to play roles you might recognize and or circle things that you might recognize. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to kind of take it from there and have it be a docudrama. Yes. It's like, I'll just watch 48 hour mystery, man. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what, what we're doing here. Why would you get Michael Stuhlbarg and Peter Sarsgaard and Jeff Daniels and tell the story about the infighting between the FBI and the CIA leading in the years leading up to nine 11 and just treat it as if it's this kind of like office procedural and have the performances by these incredible actors be so generic and the writing be so generic and there are a lot of people behind the camera and in front of the yeah. camera that I love. And I can't kind of comprehend how much this missed. And to base it off of a book that did so much to help us understand this moment. How we got there. And to understand not only what was happening in the West, but what was happening in the Middle East. And the things that, the little things that created all of this. Mm-hmm. And these decisions that people made and the sociopolitical movements that led to these horrific events and to kind of yada yada that into Jeff Daniels walking into a lanes and being like, Oh, is that a gun in your pocket? Are you happy to see me? It's like that kind of shit. It's just sort of like, why bother? Who is there to say why this, why now? And Lawrence Wright was involved in this. I know. Um, I'm not trying to knock Lawrence Wright. I I mean, but like, like I'm not trying to knock Gibney. I'm not trying to knock anybody involved in this personally. It's really just more frustrating because I'm like, you guys could have done something very special. Yes. I, I, very much agree with you. I think I have more time for the show than you do, but not with any great passion. Um, I, I know nothing about the origins of this project or how it went down, how it ended up on Hulu, how it was developed. But I think that there, there clearly was a failure of development here. Yeah, I think it was. A, I think those questions weren't asked enough. But I also think, uh, based on nothing but from watching the show, there is a real aroma of notes in this, mm-hmm. which is surprising because Dan Futterman, who wrote it, um, wrote Capote, worked on In, in, um, in Treatment, um, a very talented writer. I mean, you, you and I are both in agreement that the people involved here are an all-star team. We'd want to see projects written by, directed by, developed from, starring almost all of these people. Um, but what's strange about it, and, and this relates to my point from McMafia, where maybe they don't understand the power of what they have and they feel the need to... Um, put hang lanterns on it, make it clear, make it more TV like the analogy. I'll use the example I'll use from the show is this, um, the watch all-star Bill camp is in the show yeah. with an all time mustache. 
Um, you put him as a rumpled FBI guy working in the New York office in the 90s, yes, I buy it. I mean, his performance in the just the few scenes he's in in the beginning of the first episode, and the first three are available now on Hulu, we should say, uh, are enough to make me believe everything he's doing mm-hmm. and where he is. He's that good, and his presence is that strong. He goes to Nairobi to uh, investigate something. Um, while there, he has an, a pleasant interaction with uh, a beautiful black woman who is a CIA operative working in Nairobi. Uh we learn in the second episode or subsequently uh, that that she has slept with him. And there's been a one-night stand. Mm-hmm. And then when there is a terrorist attack, sorry, spoiler, but it's history, uh, on the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, and he goes back to investigate, he is desperately searching for this woman that he slept with. And it is so insane to me that they've added the subplot. Mm-hmm. First of all, you don't need this. You're talking about global terrorism. You don't need this. We understand. We feel terribly about people who died in this attack. Yeah. If you just show this woman that he's had this moment with, she helped him in the office, we worry about her. We don't need to worry about her because she slept with this rumpled paintbrush of a man that she just met. It is just idiotic, frankly, storytelling. And it's beneath everybody involved that they've they've wedged this in. It, It simply doesn't make sense. You don't need to earn our trust. We believe that these people should not have been blown up in a terrorist attack. Yeah. And there's that element to this whole project that is bewildering to me. Um, Jeff Daniels stars as a, as a real life. John O'Neill. Very compelling character whose own life story arc, which I won't say, uh, even though, again, it's available on Wikipedia because I'm sure the show will tell us this, is almost preposterous. Yeah. When you read about his life. And, and in I'm the sure book, that- he is described as this larger than life figure and there are things that he does in the first episode, the first two episodes, and you're watching and you're like, this is ridiculous. This is insane. Like, nobody yeah. who worked in the FBI wore double-breasted suits and loafers like this and acted like a Corleone or like a New York fixer. Yeah. I mean, he is he is like a—he is almost larger than life. Well, they seem to have written as the character note, what if Will McAvoy from the newsroom, but he fucks? Right. Because it's super weird. Again, there's these— there, the second episode, I'm getting into it, and I was enjoying it. And he, I was getting into it and enjoying it because there are moments in the show when it strips away um, not history but pretense, and I'm like, okay, you're doing a procedural. Mm-hmm. You're doing a cop show. And the interesting tension that I believe does derive from the book is the tension between the CIA, who get a lot of blame and credit, for speaking of Zero Dark Thirty, for everything that happened in the war on terror, but the tension between the CIA and the FBI, who are attempting to investigate all this also. Sure. And the FBI were trying to run it like a police investigation, and the CIA were treating it like— An intelligence know, operation. But not just that, but like yeah. a— but the FBI were 20th century investigators and the CIA were trying to predict a much darker 21st sure. century even before we got there. That collision is interesting. So seeing Daniels' team piece this together like police work, um, that that's great. But then midway through the second episode, there's this bizarre music cue where we're, we're hearing like uh, Arabic music but with a hip-hop beat. And then it cuts to Daniels just grinding, just putting in his overtime. Yeah over a young woman that he's not married to. And I don't know what we're doing here. I literally don't know what we're watching. We don't have time for this, but we don't have time for either because we're trying to be everything to all people, which to go full picture back to what you were saying at the beginning, that's what TV used to be. Right. TV is so old-fashioned again. All TV of a was everybody's baby, the rescue of Jessica McClure. Yes. Guys, and, that's what this is. And I mean, something that for literally everybody is what this is. In it. And, and, but there are glimpses. 
where you see the budget or you see Bill Camp or this interesting um, French-Algerian actor. Who's Tahar played, Rahim, who's in The Last Panthers. I mean, he's a show that you incredible, love. yeah. Um, and then you see him, you know, I guess the thing is, I enjoyed watching these two episodes. I might watch a few more. But I, like with everything we've been talking about recently, except Atlanta, I'm just a little disappointed. There's there's a scene uh, in early on that is set at one of my favorite secret uh, West Village restaurants, Mustache, mm-hmm. which just has great, great, great pita, by the way, which you see. <laughs> and you talk about shows being set somewhere. I'm like, yeah, I went there in 1998 in yeah. Manhattan. It's a real place. That's wonderful. And then... But then a few minutes later, the, the 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 character that he's playing, who's a real FBI agent who went through a lot of this, has to have a big like not all hashtag not all Muslims scene right. in London because we need to underline this and underscore it. And the show is working so hard to get us places where we don't need to go. And it's frustrating. And I think one of the deeper frustrations is, can we get a show tethered to reality in any way that can transcend the bonds of wikipedia what i mean is a john o'neill type character who bucks the system but divorce him from reality focus on him that's a show yeah you know uh yeah why stay if you're in gonna one cut place. out all the stuff from the egyptian prisons that created that's is that, is that what a character says an airplane that created you ever, the forces you ever spent time that in led prison? to this in the first place if you're going to cut out the character from looming tower the book who travels to Colorado in his youth and like is exposed to the West, but then winds up retreating back to the Middle East. And there's all this st- built-in history that that this show could have played with. But if you're going to cut that stuff out, cut it all out and choose one person. Yeah. Do John O'Neill. And I have to say, you know, I, I think we've been spoiled over the last five or six years where even your sort of standard Netflix procedural or, or even something like Dark, which looks like a billion dollars, just, uh, euros it's right and it's it's quite a time it's your basic conversation scene is directed with enough technical virtuosity mm-hmm. that you don't realize you're watching a tv show mm-hmm. and you do when you're watching looming tower there are scenes where there are guys in the conference or in a conference room where there's a bunch of people in a conference room and i I like a bunch of Alex Gibney's documentaries, but oh, I know what you're saying. There's yeah. like it'll be like Jeff Daniels being like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Get out of here!" And it's like, and then it waits on him for another two seconds, and I'm like, "This isn't. It's not. You get, what's going on here?" And it's, there's just like very standard flat direction, which I think probably was a choice to say, "Hey, we want to make this almost like it's a documentary. We want yeah, to make but, it like it's there." But it's actually, if you overdo that, you rob the show of drama. There's there there is. There are a couple moments like that that go a little further. When when Bill Camp arrives back in Nairobi, um, he's just acting the hell out of it. I mean, I buy it when he's on screen. Yeah. And then he 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 gives some instructions to one of his subordinates, and the guy looks like a Calvin Klein model whose last appearance was on Marvel's Agents of Shield. Sure. I'm like, no, no, yeah. sorry, yeah. no. That's a TV actor. That is a uh, broadcast network TV actor. Yeah, I do not buy that he is on the FBI away and it's team like not in Nairobi. Every actor needs to look like Shea Wiggum, but you need to like give it some thought. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and it's strange the the holes that 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 it fell into. Um, I, I think that what we're coming up against again and again, and this isn't the sexiest uh, hook for what our podcast has been over the last few weeks, as we've been trying to talk more, engage more directly in TV uh, week to week, is TV has gotten so much bigger but it does seem to have forgotten the value of being small. Now, not small in your imagination, not small in your rigor 
um, your attention to detail. But the lesson from Atlanta isn't get Lando Calrissian to do a comedy. Mm-mm. The lesson of Atlanta is let someone who has a point of view cook. Mm-hmm. Let him hire his friends if need be. Um, develop it. And again, I don't want to make it seem like this emerged like a phoenix uh, just from the ashes of whatever the Glover brothers were smoking that night. Sure. This show was developed. Yeah. You know, they even talk about in the New Yorker story about how they Trojan horse a version of the show. The, the notes the first... process that they went sure, through. Sure, yeah. they did. But And they talk about things that are the same kind of like pre-prestige ideas that I, I'm talking about. Yes. Like like this this character needs a win. What does he want? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but Paul Sims from News Radio is an executive producer on the show. There's DNA there. But yeah. the but the bigger thing is they went specific and then they exploded it into a galaxy. And TV has been reaching for bigger and bigger and bigger hooks from from recent history, from you know, as, as evidenced by what Amazon just did, the works of Tolkien. Yeah, it's using Fine. history as a concept. It's but, like this, what's the high concept? The high concept is history. The high concept is people remember this. The high concept is we can retell something that they have kind of a nostalgia for or a reminiscence of, but we'll fill in the blanks with famous actors. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Waco, which you mentioned correctly as an analog to this, had an idea I think the yes. show wanted to be— has ideas. The show more wanted to be about how we ended up in this place of militarization uh, in law enforcement, among other things. But it also had to tick boxes of the historical record, um, or it felt that it had to. Yeah, and also the raid starts in the second episode, so it's four episodes of, of the standoff, which, of course, would be the major part of the show. But if you spend one hour with people before this stuff happens, you're only going to have— X amount of an investment in the characters. It's super weird. Like Sarsgaard, you mentioned, is on the show playing a not just mustache but full beard twirling CIA villain. Mm -hmm. It's just deeply uninteresting to me that he's so cartoonish and bizarre, just a bizarre choice. Gotta give shouts to Stuhlbarg, though. Because when that guy guy came out on the scene in Coen Brothers' A Serious Man, I was like, respect to this respected theater actor, (laughs) just putting it on for nebbishes everywhere. I'm like, who knows what his career will be like. Turns out he will work more than anyone. Anyone. I mean, that guy has had quite a year. He is in everything. Yeah. And I was very surprised to see him on this as uh, uh, counterterrorism czar Richard Clark. He is in uh, Call Me By Your Name this year, which is one of the Oscar-nominated films. Uh, Let's quickly- Was that your segue? Yeah. That was a good one. Thanks, man. I'm, you know, it's, have you been doing podcasts in your spare time, getting your Donald Glover reps? <laughs> I can't know if you can tell. Uh, give me one shocking surprise that you think could happen on Sunday. I will have watched all the nominated films by Sunday night. <laughs> okay. I, it's been, it's been touch and go. <laughs> Thanks, Ebert. It has been a race to the finish line. Yeah. Um, what, what one shocking thing that I yeah, think? Yeah, give me, just throw one out there. I think Get Out's going to win Best Picture. Okay. Is that still shocking? I haven't been. No, that's the- like that's the drum beat now. It is. Yeah. God, I was really thought I was gonna. I thought that was gonna it's be that preferential guy. ballot. It's there's all sorts of reasons, but that that was a couple weeks ago. There was a rumor about it, and now in the last couple of days, it's really heated up. I mean, it it is such a strange, crowded but muddled field that it wouldn't su- surprise me. I mean, I don't know what I don't know if there's conventional wisdom anymore. Is what I mean. I think yeah. it has become a lot more. I mean, preferential ballot. When you say that, is a thing. Do you want to explain specifically? Yeah, it just means that if there's not, I, Sean did a really good. We did a bunch of videos about yeah. talking and conversations about it. So you can watch the one that Sean explains this pretty well in one of these. I, it essentially means that if one movie doesn't get more than fifty percent of the vote, essentially that's it starts weighting it towards what got second place votes, what got third, you know, like that right. kind of thing, and that Get Out can be 
basically enough people's second place yes. that it, it could win. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I don't, I mean, maybe Shape of Water really is this like industry phenomenon, but I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is a truly gifted director. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Nolan won for Dunkirk. I just, I, I don't, there's no narrative in place that the, suggests I, I that hope, will happen. I hope happen. you're right about this, that level of surprise, because I think the acting awards are pretty much locked up. I am so angry already. About McDormand and Rockwell? Yes. Sam Rockwell, he's been a guest on my podcast. <laughs> a kind guy. On your podcast, I guess back when it was the Andy Greenwald show. I almost, I thought about it for a minute. It, it's been folded in. <laughs> It's fine. It's in the mothership now. He's been on our podcast. Um, Great guy. Great actor. A garbage role in a trash movie. Like, I I am so heated about this movie because I watched it this morning. But as people who follow me on Twitter learned, um, I'm just, I'm truly shocked because I thought that, I, I was really ready to be on this. You know, look, it's just movies, man. Like, let's calm down about picking sides, mm-hmm. hashtag sides. I, I don't really want a culture <laughs> war over the Best Picture nominees. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's worthwhile. Um, but I didn't realize that it, I, I think it's fundamentally a garbage movie because I think there's not a single genuine moment in it. Not because- You think it has uh, bad uh, things to say about society. Well, I think that Martin McDonough has never set foot in America, has nothing interesting to say about it, has n- his opinions on it have no value. It is, it is set in a zero place with zero ob- observed behavior or emotional truth. Okay. Like, I, I was stunned by it. But I also think it's clumsy storytelling that gives us nothing. It, yeah, the political, like, is it politically incorrect and seems to love that? Yeah, and that's that shit's real boring to me. But- I really loved in Bruges. You know, I don't mind when characters say like say too. salty things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to stop you there. That's that's <laughs> not a good movie. But but yeah. So I so I'm I'm really bummed when I see actors that I admire a lot. Yeah. And actors are actors. You know, they they do their best with the material they're given. But McDormand, I mean, she's she's fun. She's great to watch. But what is that part? It's just a bummer in a year with re- truly great performances surrounding them. You know, that, that, that that's probably going to happen. So I hope there are more surprises. Okay. Well, we will find out on Sunday. You can join me and Andy. Wait, what's yours? How, whoa. What about your surprise? Uh, my big surprise. You think I Boss think Baby we, is going to unseat Coco? My surprise, it, it's not going to happen, but my surprise would be Laurie Metcalf beating Alice and Janney. See, I would love that too. Uh, it just doesn't sound like it's going to happen, but Do I you think- know that um, Laurie Metcalf has been on our podcast? Yes. We talked to her together. Yeah. Alice and Janney, no show. <laughs> she just keeps, she keeps shutting us down. We requested the parrot. Yeah. <laughs> we we couldn't even book that. I I Jenny. Um okay. Sunday pre-show and post-show Andy and I will be joined by Amanda and Sean. You can watch us on video with the pre-show, video with the post-show. That post-show will also be the watch on Monday. Oh. But we've got some pretty cool stuff coming for oh, you. Oh yeah, next we got week. some people coming in. Uh-huh. We got some stuff to do. Yeah. So I'm we're excited about next week. Keep watching McMafia at your leisure. We'll figure out another show to do the chapter review of pretty soon. And we've got to get you guys a double down book club next week. We'll, we'll yeah, we got to we'll get into that one soon. Next week we'll just we'll, we'll pick one next. All week. right. Until then, happy Oscars. Great job, Brian. See you Sunday.
Hey guys, this is Sean Fennessy, the editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and I want to tell you about a podcast I host called The Big Picture. Each week, I welcome a different filmmaker to talk about their latest movie and how it was made. I've talked to the directors of some of my favorite movies, including Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Ryan Johnson, Barry Jenkins, and dozens more. You can find new episodes on the Channel 33 feed every Friday by going to theringer.com backslash podcasts or by subscribing to Channel 33 wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll check it out. 